This is an ABC podcast. And a very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along today. Shortly, a Perth-based fresh fruit and vegetable supplier, Get Fresh, has just paid penalties, just over $43,000 worth of penalties, after it allegedly contravened the Horticultural Code of Conduct. We'll catch up with the ACCC's Deputy Chair, Mick Keogh, shortly here on the Country Hour. And also, herbicide-resistant weeds are becoming quite a problem for many farmers, but fear not, soon you might have a new weapon, a machine that zaps them with an electric current. At appropriate application speeds, you can actually get control of over 90% achieved for your grass species. And as the tractor travels forward, the electrodes wipe over the weeds and transfer the current, which actually bursts the weed cells and kills it or suppresses its growth. Shortly, you'll get an update on that machine because researchers based right here in Western Australia have been testing it for the last year just to find out how effective it is at killing the sorts of weeds farmers really struggle to control. We'll get to that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, the Greens are accusing the big supermarkets of price gouging during a cost of living crisis. The party is pointing the finger at Coles and Woolworths which are pulling in profits of more than a billion dollars this year. Green Senator Nick McKim is setting up a Senate inquiry to investigate and find the evidence to back up his accusation of price gouging. Anecdotally, absolutely there is evidence, and the evidence is simply what people are paying. It it is impossible to walk through the aisles and fill up your supermarket trolley and then get to the checkout and not be shocked at the dollar value of the goods that you've uh, that you're attempting to buy and at the same time we've got Coles and Woolies raking in billions of dollars in profits so there's something not right in the supermarket sector in Australia and particularly as Australians are just getting smashed with interest rate rises we've got record rent inflation at the moment in Australia there is undoubtedly a cost of living crisis going on in this country and the price that people are paying for food and groceries is a significant part of that. So with your inquiry, what are your terms of references? So the terms of reference will allow us to look at the whole supply chain. So what Coles and Woolies and the major supermarkets are paying for their products. And when we talk to farmers and when, you know, when I talk to farmers, what I hear from farmers is they're not getting um, significant increases in the the veggies and, and the other products that they're selling to the major supermarkets. But then when you talk to shoppers, they're saying that it's becoming harder and harder to afford those goods. And so there's something going wrong with the whole um, chain of supply and sale in Australia. And we need more transparency. We need more accountability. And it's it's the Greens' very strong view that it's likely that the massive market concentration that Coles and Woolworths enjoy means that there's not the competitive pressure in the supermarket sector that there should be. And so you want to break that duopoly, do you? Well, I think there's a very strong argument for divestiture powers, and they exist in many so-called free market economies around the world where governments um, have the power to go to the courts and ask for a divestiture order which would basically enforce more 
competition in the supermarket sector and the food and grocery sector in Australia because as you know your callers and people around the country are in touch with my office today basically saying that they haven't to go without some of the essentials of life because food and grocery prices are just going through the roof at the moment and we need to make sure I mean they're obviously a necessity of life and we need to make sure that the big supermarkets are not price gouging over and above the cost, uh, the increasing cost of the things that they're selling. The supermarket senators say that they've been forced to push up prices because of global price increases and supply chain issues. You don't accept that? I certainly accept that there are supply side issues at play here. Like there's things like climate change, there's things like you know global conflict, um, international supply chain issues. There's no doubt that those things are real. What we need to investigate is whether Coles and Woolies are using those things as cover to increase their prices above and beyond the increase in their costs that are forced on them by these global supply side issues. So one thing, um, the Greens don't take political donations from big corporations, so we're very, very happy to take on the big corporations, and it's about time that politics in Australia held Coles and Woolworths to account, uh, enforced a bit of transparency on them and gave them an opportunity to, if they can, justify their prices. Uh, have a listen to um, economist Stephen Kakoulis. He was actually speaking to uh, one of my colleagues on ABC Melbourne this morning, and he basically says this inquiry is not needed. Oh, look, I think it's a bit of a waste of time because um, the supermarkets are just like any other business in a way. They uh, pay for the inputs and that includes the, the cost of the, you know, the box of cereal or the lettuce or whatever they're selling. So they pay for that. They pay for the transport distribution. They pay their staff and they have to make a small margin over and above that to make it a, a profitable business. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in that business at all. Does he have a point there? He's got no point whatsoever. Let's be really clear about this. Um, it's fine for business to make a reasonable profit, but it is not fine for things like supermarkets to price gouge people. And it is certainly not fine for Coles and Woolworths to prioritise making billions of dollars in profits over and above Australians being uh, capable and being able to afford to put a decent meal on the table for themselves and their family. So I don't accept that argument. He is blithely assuming that there is no price gouging going on when you, your eyes uh, and your wallets will be telling you something different. Senator, um, a Nationals MP, David Littleproud, says this inquiry won't actually go far enough and you're probably better off leaving it to the ACCC to investigate. They've been calling on the ACCC to look at this. Uh, they say it would be, well, he says it would be quicker, it would be more effective, um, and that is a better course of action given that the, the, the price crisis is now. What will your inquiry really achieve practically? Well, well, a couple of responses there. Firstly, it's not being investigated by the ACCC and, and governments have nowhere to go when they have concerns about costs at the moment. Secondly, I have asked the ACCC about this issue and they've agreed with the Greens' proposition that if we had divestiture powers in Australia, that would result in lower food and grocery prices. So uh, I just say to Mr Littleproud, um, get with the program here, um, put one of your national senators on this inquiry 
and we can work together to tackle the market power that Coles and Woolworths have and we can work together to dismantle that power if that's what needs to happen and bring food and grocery prices in Australia down. The Nationals are putting pressure on the ACCC to investigate. Do you think the ACCC should look at this? I'd be happy for the ACCC to look at it, but ultimately the Greens are sick of waiting and we need action that is uh, cross-party. We need politicians, no matter what their politics, to work together on this issue and we need to uh, enforce and we will through this committee, we will require the CEOs of Coles and Woolworths to front this Senate inquiry and, if, if they can, to explain themselves and why their prices of food and groceries are so high at the time that they're raking in billions of dollars in profit. And when will this happen? How, how quickly can you get it up? So the the committee will be established this week. We've yep. got um, Labor support for that, so that'll happen in the next couple of days, probably tomorrow. And the inquiry will run until April, May next year. There'll be a, a period of time where people can put in submissions and then we'll hold uh, a series of public hearings around the country in the first few months of next year, including giving Coles and Woolies CEOs the opportunity to come in and, and have their say. But we'll be putting to them very strongly that they need... Uh, more transparency, more accountability and the disinfectant of sunlight on their pricing policies. Otherwise, they can expect to receive more flack, not just from the Greens, but from the Australian people. Green Senator Nick McKim with Nadia Mitsopoulos, 14 past 12. Well, as you just heard, the National Party thinks an inquiry into allegations of price gouging by the supermarket giants should be handled by the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, says an ACCC investigation would have more powers than a Senate inquiry. I don't believe that politicians should be doing this. I think the ACCC should be doing it. They're equipped uh, to be able to look into this and to be able then to give advice about what needs to happen. We've been calling for a price monitoring inquiry, particularly since we saw such a big reduction, a 60% reduction in cattle and sheep prices, yet only an 8% in meat prices at the supermarket. You look at horticulture, they're paying about a dollar a kilogram to our watermelon growers, but yet they're retailing them for three to four. You know, you don't need a process of watermelon, you throw it in the back of a truck and it ends up on a shelf. So these supermarkets have form. They did us over during COVID, the ACCC former uh, chair made that very clear that those big profits that they made was uh, at the expense of the consumer and supplier. And so it's important now that we call them out as quickly as we can. This this uh, ACCC inquiry could actually compel the CEOs to turn up. The Senate inquiry doesn't compel the CEOs to turn up and give evidence. That's why it's important you use the right mechanism. The government's doing a broader review of competition policy and the nationals have made it very clear both publicly and privately, I've said to the competition minister that we would support divestiture powers so that if the supermarkets did the wrong thing, uh, they could lose Dan Murphy's or a BWS uh, as part of their chains. There should be proper penalties, not $64,000 as it is now under the Grocery Code of Conduct. It, it should start at $10 million and ramp up. There should be a cheap independent arbiter for suppliers uh, to be able to come forward and show that they've been mistreated in the consumer law reforms. But the cost of living crisis is here and now, and that's why we're saying that this short, sharp price monitoring inquiry on perishable goods, particularly meat and vegetables, would be able to have some action now and could have had action before Christmas had the government acted sooner. What do you hear from farmers about the gap between what they get paid and between what supermarkets are charging for what they produce? 
Well, the supermarkets are having a lend of them. And, and look, farmers have been price takers and we all understand that. But when they're not getting, uh, the market is, is not giving them uh, the prices that they're seeing at the, at the supermarket, when there's such a significant disparity between the two, we get that there's extra costs of energy and fuel at the moment, but not that significant that you are seeing. And particularly when you think about the cattle job, you know, the, the grass fed should have come off straight away when the prices fell in June. I, I get the grain fed takes about 90 days and a bit over for it to work its way through feedlots and processes. But these prices fell in June and yet the supermarkets were still charging $35 a kilogram uh, for steak. So this is where something has to happen and anyone can see it. You just need to have an ACCC that, that's directed by the government to get on with the job and go after them. And the way that the system works, even if the ACCC would like to look at this issue, it, it doesn't have the power to unless directed to by the Minister? By the Treasurer. The Treasurer has the power to ask the ACCC to undertake a price monitoring inquiry. That's why, you know, this is window dressing this Senate inquiry. It's just a bunch of politicians asking questions rather than the ACCC. Um, we need this before Christmas. Um, they're not going to start this Senate inquiry till February or March next year. So, you know, uh, the cost of living crisis is now for Anthony Albanese. If he wants to walk out the, out the street and run down the supermarket now, he'll see the punters walking out, looking at their docket going, you know, what's left in the wallet? If they've been cleaned up. So this is the here and now that needs to happen, not next, next year and not with politicians, but with the right, with the right uh, architecture and the right tools. And that's the ACCC. Leader of the Nationals, David, a little proud with Angus Verley. 18 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Perth-based fresh fruit and vegetable supplier Get Fresh has paid penalties totalling just over $43,000 after the ACCC issued it with three infringement notices for alleged contraventions of the Horticultural Code of Conduct. Mick Keogh is Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Mick, how did the company allegedly breach the Horticultural Code of Conduct? The Horticultural Code of Conduct is reasonably straightforward in its requirements of traders. It requires them to do two things in particular. One is to publish their terms of trade. So in other words, uh, how they operate and in their relationship with uh, growers and then the second is that it requires for each grower that they operate for they enter into a horticultural produce agreement so in other words that spells out the fees and charges the payment terms the uh, conditions under which they accept the produce etc so that those two things are fairly straightforward and in fact in any other industry uh, are regarded as just routine um, I guess it's a, 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 a pointed to the history of the horticulture sector being one where written agreements and uh, documentation of what's happening is not uh, always been uh, at the normal level. So that's why the code was introduced. Um, in, in both instances, Get Fresh um, failed to have those arrangements in place. So we allege they failed to publish their terms of trade uh, on their website, and we also allege they failed to enter into horticultural produce agreements with growers whom they were um, acting for in terms of marketing their product. Is the payment of the penalty an admission of guilt? Uh, no, it's not. Under the, um, under the Horticulture Code and, in fact, other codes, 
um, the, the option is there, a bit like a speeding fine uh, in relation to, to driving on the roads. Uh, you can accept to pay the fine. It's not necessarily admission of guilt, but it indicates you're not prepared to contest it in the courts. The alternative is to contest it in the courts, uh, in which case um, a, a, a judge would make a decision on guilt or not. What does the code set out to achieve, Mick? It, it set out to achieve much greater transparency in the relationship between growers and merchants or agents. Uh, as I said, the horticulture sector has been one subject to absolutely numerous inquiries over many, many years because of the lack of clarity and transparency in how uh, merchants and agents operate in the business and therefore the um, very poor level of information that's available to growers. Um, for example, the horticulture sector is one agricultural sector in Australia that has almost no market price reporting in a formal sense available to growers. Um, it's also one where the terms and conditions of sale between growers and uh, agents have traditionally not been put in writing. It's It's been a phone call. And that has um, very negative consequences for growers when it comes to sorting out disputes or trying to resolve um, who owns what when. Um, and that's why the code was introduced. It's been in place for quite a few years now, and yet we still see agents and merchants operating without complying with the code. And that's why we continue to issue these infringement notices and, and penalties to traders. Uh, this is the fourth one we've issued this year. And uh, you would think the message would get through, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to. So the code is compulsory? It is. For anyone dealing with growers in terms of their produce, their fresh produce. And how did it come to your attention, these concerns on this occasion? Uh, we issued some uh, updated guidance uh, last year during 2022 and indicated at the time that we would then proceed to check compliance with that information. Uh, we can have some information gathering powers we can use. We issued those to a sample of uh, produce merchants uh, around Australia and to be honest, we're quite disappointed with the result and that's why we've proceeded to issue penalties because uh, the message just isn't getting through that there's some minimum requirements under the Horticulture Code that have to be complied with. Is it possible these companies are just oblivious, unaware of the requirements under the Code? Uh, we don't believe so. Um, the horticulture, uh, sorry, the, the fresh produce merchants associations in each of the states have voluminous material available advising their members of the requirements, including template agreements and uh, documents of that sort of nature. So anyone who's operating in this sector and particularly anyone who's been operating for multiple years uh, couldn't help but be aware of the requirements of the code. So um, it's just uh, unfortunately an attitude towards business and towards the growers um, that is persistent in the sector and uh, therefore that's why we continue to issue these infringement notices. So a 43 or just over $43,000 fine, is that enough of a deterrent? Uh, I think we would argue that 
it, it is not given, um, you know, even in this single year alone, we've issued four of these. Um, in previous years, we've had similar numbers on different occasions. So it clearly isn't delivering a strong enough sting uh, to those involved in the sector um, that uh, they need to upgrade their compliance with the code. Um, I, I think we'd prefer to see stronger penalties available, um, but uh, the way it is, uh, we're the regulators rather than the policymakers, so uh, that's up to others to decide. Mm. 25 past 12 here on The Country. Our Mick Keogh on the show today is the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Mick, a couple of other things just to tick off while you're here, which is fortunate to have you here today. Uh, in a moment, we're talking about an unlicensed labour hire company just being fined more than $600,000 by the Victorian Labour Hire Authority. A Victorian um, labour hire company has been fined that record amount of over $600,000 for supplying farm workers without holding a labour hire licence and for underpaying uh, and mistreating workers. What do you make of that penalty? Well, that that's the sort of penalty that would clearly send a very strong message through, for example, the labour hire sector. Uh, of the need to make sure there's compliance with uh, the obligations associated with being in that business. Um, and certainly in other areas of our activity, um, particularly in relation to consumer law, uh, we have much higher penalties available, up to $50 million in some instances. And we've we've used those penalties, for example, uh, the case of uh, Volkswagen and their um, uh, approach to emissions testing, which was misleading and deceptive, um, they copped uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of penalties. So generally speaking, we are of the view that um, stronger penalties are needed to send a really clear message to those participants in the industry about the need to meet their obligations. And also, just at the start of the show today, we heard about an inquiry into allegations of price gouging by the big supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths. Uh, we heard from the Greens and also a leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud. He's keen for this to be an ACCC investigation into claims of price gouging and the Greens are keen for a Senate inquiry. David Littleproud thinks that a Senate inquiry would have more powers, uh, be quicker, more effective. Are you keen to jump in? Uh, it's really up to um, the Treasurer to uh, provide us with a direction. There's a provision under our legislation, uh, Section 95, which gives us compulsory information gathering powers. Um, and certainly we've conducted previous inquiries, for example, into the dairy sector and into the Murray-Darling Basin water markets using those powers. And uh, they can provide a very robust and sound uh, report because it's based on facts. It's based on actual information, um, sales information, uh, costs information, all that sort of stuff that we can get firsthand from participants in the industry. So certainly um, the powers that are available to us under that section uh, after a direction from the Treasurer um, are very useful in these sort of situations. Is but, an inquiry uh, needed? Uh, look, that's really a, a, a decision for policymakers. That's not uh, something that um, the regulator uh, expresses an opinion on. If we're required to do so, 
we will undertake one. But uh, as I said, it's really up to policymakers to make those decisions. Good to talk to you, Mick. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mick Keogh, he is the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. It is 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Hopper is in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. A Perth teenager has pleaded guilty to endangering the safety of staff and students by firing shots at a northern suburb school. The 15-year-old boy, who cannot be identified, was arrested outside the Atlantis Beach Baptist College in May after firing two shots at buildings, sending the school into immediate lockdown. Today in the Perth Children's Court, he pleaded guilty to eight charges, including two counts of endangering the safety safety of staff and students, possessing a prohibited weapon and driving without a licence. WA's Education Minister says the State Government's review of the School Education Act to better support students with disabilities needs to be paired with cultural changes. The review will be guided by a telethon autism researcher, Professor Andrew Whitehouse, and will start early next year. And the bodies of 11 climbers have been found after the eruption of a volcano in West Sumatra. Rescue teams say they are still searching for another 12 people who are missing. The Merapi volcano erupted yesterday, spewing ash as high as three kilometres into the air. 52 climbers have been rescued and many have been treated for burns. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you so much for the update. It is half past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. This just in on the text from Bob who says the banks make many billions of dollars more than the two big supermarkets and have closed about 40% of branches in six years. Perhaps both institutions could be looked at. That's Bob's thoughts. Let me know what you're thinking this afternoon on the text 0448 922 Half past 12 and just before one, it is off to Muche for the results of today's cattle market. And tell you more about that electric weed killer that's been put to the test here in Western Australia. How effective is it? You will find out shortly. Right now, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson with you this afternoon. Joey, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon? Yeah, hi, Belinda. We do have a weak front that's uh, basically brushing that southwest coast as we speak. Um, Not a lot in it, just a a couple of light showers, and and that's going to sort of move out to the east and won't get that southeast coast. So by by the time you get to sort of Bremer Bay, um, we're not expecting much shower activity, but along that Albany coast, there may be a meal or two as that uh, moves through. But uh, once that moves through, um, we don't have a lot of activity for uh, the rest of today and also for tomorrow. Um, But as we get into uh, Wednesday and Thursday, things start to get a little bit more interesting, Belinda, as we have a a trough that develops uh, just inland from the west coast. So we start seeing um, some thunderstorm activity um, push through most of the inland parts of the southwest land division. Um, not expecting a lot of shower activity um, through the central wheat belt or um, eastern parts of the Great Southern. Um, it'll be more dry thunderstorms, so thunderstorms that are quite high and that rain doesn't reach the ground. But through uh, the southern parts of the gold fields into the Eucla area for Wednesday, um, some of that rain potentially will reach the ground. So areas like Kalgoorlie may receive 10 to 20 millimetres out of thunderstorms um, and areas nearly into Eucla could receive some uh, falls around that 10 to 20 millimetres. When we track onto Thursday, that feature 
contracts a little bit further back to the west coast. So um, thunderstorm activity could produce falls around the 20 to 30 millimetres, basically from an area um, from about Kalgoorlie, stretching down to around the Esperance area. So um, there's, yeah, a good potential of getting some half-decent falls around that 20 to 30 millimetres on a Thursday. And then on Friday, that area just slowly moves out to the east, but it's still in the southern parts of the goldfields and eastern parts of the southeast coastal district. And again, there is uh, the potential of getting 20 to 30 millimetres if a thunderstorm lines up um, over your area. So um, a lot of thunderstorms around, but you know through that southeast part of uh, the Southwest Land Division from basically Wednesday onto Friday, there could be some half decent falls around Belinda. And then looking into northern and eastern parts, Joe, is there much thunderstorm activity in those parts of the state? Yeah, there sure is, and and certainly the thunderstorms over the Kimberley uh, that have been going for for many days now or many weeks, we should say, um, they're firing off at the moment. Um, we've been receiving around 20 to 30 millimetres out of those thunderstorms, but they are quite isolated in nature. So if you're under one of those storms, they're not going to move too quick and it will look uh, quite threatening, but um, it's only in very um, isolated areas, if you know what I mean. Um, that will continue for you know the Kimberley and, and more over the northern eastern parts of the Kimberley um, throughout the week, um, but there's also going to be storms uh, basically uh, through the interior and eastern parts of the uh, Pilbara tomorrow, as well as Wednesday and Thursday and into Friday. But the further south you get away from that Kimberley, the less rainfall we are expecting. It j- just gets too hot. Some of the temperatures in um, the eastern parts of the Pilbara are, are astronomical at the moment. For example, Marble Bar, we're looking at temperatures 43 today, uh, 44 tomorrow, 43 on Wednesday with minimums overnight around 27, 28. So, um, and, that, and that's a very similar story for, for many inland parts um, of the state, Belinda. So, yeah, very hot conditions. All right. I won't complain about the heat further south then. Now, um Warnings this afternoon. What have you got, Joey? So we've got um, a heat wave warning that uh, covers central and northern parts of the state. So um, if you are in that area, make sure you um, take care. And we've also got a marine wind warning for the Ningaloo coast, the Gascoigne coast and the Geraldton coast for this afternoon. Thank you, Joey. I appreciate you going through those details. 25 to 1. Now, let's take a look at the weekend rainfall. So this is a look back at the last, what, 72 hours from 9 o'clock Friday to 9 o'clock today and checking 5 mils and over. Starting in northern and eastern forecast districts and just some rain over 5 mils in the Kimberley. Bedford Downs airstrip had 9, Doongan 6, Drysdale River Station 16, Gibb River 5, and Theta 17. And then in the Southwest Land Division, nothing over five mils. It is 24 to 1. And as we were talking about just earlier in the hour with Mick Keogh from the ACCC, this unlicensed labour hire company has just been fined more than $600,000 by the Victorian Labour Hire Authority. The Supreme Court found AL Star Express 
knowingly and repeatedly breached the Labor Hire Licensing Act by supplying workers to horticulture businesses around Melbourne without holding a Labor Hire licence. It also found those workers were underpaid and mistreated. Labor Hire Authority Commissioner Steve Dargarville says they'll do everything possible to expose dodgy labour hire companies. Look, labour hire workers picking fruit and vegetables amongst Victoria's most vulnerable workers. Um, it's really critical that companies employing them are uh, appropriately vetted and licensed. And look, dodgy labour hire providers who pay workers as little as $17 an hour just have no place in our industry and they will be held to account. The Supreme Court has imposed a penalty of $617,000 on labour hire provider AL Star Express for its repeated contraventions in supplying vulnerable workers to an egg farm, nursery, berry, uh, picking berries and vegetables. And these workers, uh, we say, were not treated properly. The dodgy labour hire provider was unlicensed and we took that uh, provider to court to hold them to account and the court imposed Australia's largest ever penalty in labour hire licensing law of $617,000. What was the nature of the mistreatment of the workers? The workers uh, were not paid properly. They were paid well below the award. Look, there are plenty of legitimate businesses out there that would love to have um, these brilliant workers and treat them properly, but unfortunately this labour hire business saw fit to supply these workers and not pay them properly and supply them into uh, host business undertakings, as we say, in egg farm and nursery, uh, berry picking and vegetable picking. We know that workers working in these industries are particularly vulnerable, uh, as you mentioned, often backpackers or on here on work visas, perhaps limited English. Was that the case with these workers? Uh, we believe these workers were precisely vulnerable by virtue of language and uh, visa. And this unscrupulous labour hire provider was uh, doing the wrong thing. And look, it's just a reminder to hosts to only use licensed labour hire providers. It's important that uh, labour hire providers are vetted and licensed so that we don't see this kind of exploitation. And there are significant repercussions for those businesses who try to circumvent the law. Is that the case with these breaches? The farms who used this labour hire, this unlicensed labour hire company, did they know it was unlicensed? There have certainly been penalties uh, awarded and significant penalties underway against hosts. Uh, in this case, we elected to prosecute the labour hire provider and we're yet to make a decision in relation to the host businesses. That fine, as you mentioned, the highest in Australian history, almost $620,000. Was, was that only against the company or against the company and uh, individuals? Uh, this was a uh, penalty ordered against the business, AL Star Express, and um, it's certainly been the case that other matters that the authority has taken, uh, we've pursued ind individual directors as well as the company. In this case, it's a penalty awarded against the company. And I understand that the Supreme Court specifically stated that the penalty needed to be as high as it was so that it wasn't simply just, uh, I think the quote was, the, the price of doing business. Absolutely. And when the scheme was brought into being, it was brought into being for the express purpose of ensuring that dodgy labour hire providers don't pay small penalties and get away with it as a price of doing business. It's... Um, this is a significant penalty and um, the authority is 
very keen to ensure that uh, we run dodgy labour hire providers out of the industry and uh, legitimate providers are supported. Given what you've seen in your time in the role, how would you compare this to other contraventions of the, the Labor Hire Licensing Act and how would you characterise the, the company's conduct? Well, the company's conduct is serious where it is uh, operating without a licence, it's not treating workers properly and it's doing so in multiple sites. That kind of behaviour uh, will be held to account and significant penalties uh, will apply to that kind of behaviour. There is certainly other conduct that's going on in the labour hire industry that the Labor Authority is keen to bring to book and we'll have further things to say about other matters that will be taken forward um, in due course. Why does it keep happening? I mean, when this, this story popped up in, in my inbox, I was unfortunately just totally unsurprised because we, we just seem to keep hearing about these cases. Well, unfortunately, there are individuals who want to I- exploit uh, vulnerable people and make money doing it. And until those sort of folks get the message that it's not a business model that works, we'll see a, a series of these prosecutions until ultimately the message is understood. Labor Hire Authority Commissioner Steve DeGavel speaking to Angus Verley. It's 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And farmers could soon be using electricity instead of chemicals to kill weeds. And that could be particularly useful on herbicide-resistant weeds. Right here in Western Australia, Deep Herd has been testing a machine called X-Power that was developed in Germany. Research scientist Miranda Slaven says in the last year they've found electricity effectively deals with a range of weeds, including annual ryegrass, kaikuyu and wild radish. So in our first year of trials, electric weed control was shown to be quite an effective non-selective weed control strategy in a number of different scenarios. But in general, we've actually found that um, broadleaf weeds are easier to control with electric weed control. And this is just as they have a comparatively large surface area for electrode contact um, when you're comparing it with grasses. But at appropriate application speeds, you can actually get control of over 90% achieved for your grass species. And this is as the application speed actually alters the amount of electricity that is applied to the weeds. So it's similar to altering your um, herbicide application rates. So how does the machine actually work? It works by converting your tractor's PTO power into a high voltage current in the rear mounted power unit. This is then transferred to your chosen applicator unit, which contains electrodes. And as the tractor travels forward, these electrodes wipe over the weeds and transfer the current, which actually bursts the weed cells and kills it or suppresses its growth. And so you have to have contact with the weeds? Yeah, contact is the essential part of this. So you're just making sure you actually have the right application height to get all of the weeds that are your problem ones. Right. So what kind of conditions do you need? Is the speed the key thing? As with your herbicides, there are a um, range of different conditions where electric weed control is best applied to increase your efficacy. And speed is one of them. You have to consider that for your different weed populations and make sure you're applying suitably for them. But also it should be applied in winter and spring, and that's just to reduce your fire risk. And also, secondly, um, it should be applied with dry topsoils, and this is to ensure full control of the weed root systems with excessive soil moisture leading to um, possible dissipation of the current into the soil. 
So in our project, TPIRT has been conducting trials um, to determine what level of soil moisture this efficacy is altered. But as the technology has actually been predominantly used across Europe, their soil conditions are actually quite different to ours. So that has been quite of a um, difficult task. So preliminary results have indicated that rainfall events of over 20 mils in the hour or two leading up to um, your electric weed control application may reduce your efficacy. However, this is highly dependent on your soil type. But other factors such as wind and plant stress that um, affect your herbicide applications aren't actually a problem here with electric weed control. So green but not too wet. What happens if it's too wet? Uh, So if it's a bit too wet in your soil, you actually get the um, electrical current dissipating out of the root system and you won't get that full control of the roots. And that just promotes your regrowth, which is what we want to avoid. So the electricity just takes the fastest path to dissipate, which is the the water itself? Yep, the path of least resistance. Wow, it's um, fascinating. You also looked at how the electricity impacts soil bacteria. What did you look at there? So as that current does travel into soil, there is that potential for the soil biota to be affected, but we've not actually found any evidence of this in our trials. And we've used DNA analysis to compare the soil bacteria and archaea, as well as free-limiting nematodes and rhizoctonia, and found no changes in their populations. But we are continuing to analyse that this year. Have you got any preliminary um, thoughts on, on where it would be most useful? We found that it's going to be useful in a number of industries, but we've also found, interestingly, this year that growers facing herbicide-resistance weeds could also effectively use electric weed control as an alternative to chemicals. And this is as the machine was shown to be highly effective on glyphosate-resistant annual ryegrass populations. And so we can see kind of an immediate application for the technology in problem areas of resistance and also to offer an alternative to prevent that actual resistance development. Have you done any work on cost comparison to herbicide? So for cost comparison, um, that's going to be coming later in the piece. It's a little bit hard at the moment as the machinery is not yet certified for use here in Australia, so we can't really speculate on what the purchase cost would be. But once you actually have purchased it, the application costs will um, only include your fuel and labour as well as the maintenance and depreciation. But there's also potential to pair the machinery with autonomous developments. So we're removing or reducing the associated labour costs and that will actually make it quite comparable. Research scientist Miranda Slaven, who works with WA's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, she was speaking to Lucinda Jose about work done over the last year testing the X-Power machine that uses technology from German company Zasso. And she says there is this sort of um, sweet burning smell when the electricity is zapping those weeds. 12 minutes to one. A yabby farmer in WA's Great Southern Region says they're really struggling to keep up with demand in the lead up to Christmas. Derek Nenke's family farms the freshwater crayfish in ponds on their own property near Cookeran, about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. He says at this time of year, demand is about four times higher than normal. The, the orders go nuts around Christmas. We need more farmers to be able to supply us. With yabbies, the more yabbies we can get in, um, we'll be able to sell. And we'll be able to sell all, all over the world. 
So have you already like sold out for Christmas or when, do that, when does that start clogging up? Uh, the, the orders don't start coming in until December. Whatever comes in is normally sold within days, really. So, Wow. Yeah. And do you know how many kilos would sell for Christmas like in the last couple of years? In the last couple of years, it would have been a couple hundred kilos. The biggest amount in t 2010, we sold five tonne just Christmas week alone. Five yeah. tonne? Yeah, five tonne of yabbies in Christmas week alone. Why, why was that a spike? Uh, because we, we had the yabbies at the time and the and majority of them went to Singapore, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong. And like, yeah, yeah we're, we're doing a thousand kilos a week at one stage from our, our shed. So why can't it get up to that level again? It's just because you don't have the supply? Uh, we just don't have, have the supply coming into, into the farm. Farmers have, have, have just increased their land and they just don't have time to actually trap yabbies out of their dams. And a lot of farms have, have been brought out by corporates as well and, and, um, and corporates don't like people on their farms. Derek Denke speaking to Brianna... Fiori about the demand for la uh, yabbies in the lead up to Christmas. And if you want to take a look at a yabby, see what they're like, just search ABC and yabbies and you'll find Brianna's story. And there's a video included so you can check them out. 10 to 1. Well, stone fruit has been enjoying strong demand in the supermarkets this year due to a smaller than average mango crop. It was a strange year for mango growers in Kununurra and also across the border in the NT. Picking started a few weeks earlier than normal and smaller volumes meant in some cases prices were double the average. Perth market agent Adrian Farsich says it was an early finish to the season and the final mangoes were cleaned up last week. Initially they thought there might, might be a sort of big year and then as, as things went and, and the weather changed and, and heat and storms and all sorts of stuff, all of a sudden there wasn't as much fruit available. So, yeah, they're definitely like way down on volume overall up there. And, um, yeah, starting early. So start early, finish early, which happens with a lot of things. You know, I mean, if, they, if they're two weeks or three weeks early, they'll usually finish, you know, they can finish two weeks, three weeks early as well. So, yeah. You and I were chatting a couple of months ago now about how prices were sitting um, and, and they've held pretty firm. What, what have you seen through the market price-wise for the Yeah, videos? so... I would say it's it's definitely up, obviously with the volume down. The the hardest thing of the season like this is you look back and go, okay, is it because the volume's down as much as the price is up? Does that meet in the middle or balance down in the middle to a good season? And, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. That's sort of that that people will find out in the wash up. But like it, one thing I notice from say on the market side of things, um, when I'm talking market, I'm talking like small stores and and IJs and local grocers and stuff like that. One thing that becomes popular when there's a lot of fruit around and we need to move some fruit is we'll sell some stuff to these guys as tray sales and they might be selling trays. They, they might put them out the front of their store and sell a tray for 15 to $20 most years, which means they'd be paying, you know, they could be paying anywhere from 12 to $16 for stuff like that. Uh, this year I saw some people, and I didn't see many people do tray sales. I know, I know a lot probably didn't, but the ones that I did see were in like that $30. Um, I even saw some at $40, you know, which that's actually... That is actually still good value, but yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't mind a, a try mango for thirty <laughs> yeah. bucks. But if you look at the sort of history, that that in in some ways is is double or more than double what you Absolutely, usually yeah. have seen. Yeah, and that's yeah, again, and it's you know because mangoes are so popular, like a tray sale is a 
is a thing. And some people are happy to buy when they see them, they'll buy a tray and they'll give them out to their friends and whatever. But that sort of price was up. The per piece price was up in all stores and in all the chains. You, you would have seen the per piece price is definitely up on previous years. Maybe not so much of the two for five deals or, you know, things like that. With the mangoes being at the price they have been, how has that impacted demand for some of the other fruits that you're responsible for, stone fruit in particular? Um, so, like price and and it's price and, and supply, I suppose. Like it's uh, with with mango pricing sort of being up. So we had stone fruit start two to three weeks earlier than usual and uh, come on in quite good, like quite decent volumes as well. So. Once we hit summer, that's usually our busiest period because people are out to get mangoes, they're out to get stone fruit, those summer fruits. They're, they're all ready. They're all getting – they all want to get stuck into that sort of stuff. They, they love it and, you know, understandably, it's all some of the sweetest fruit that comes around. With mango sort of price being, being higher, not actually being available everywhere, like not everyone could get mangoes at some points and things like that and, you know, sometimes there wasn't any in the shop and right now, there's, you know, there wouldn't be very much. It's actually helped sort of stone fruit sort of take off a bit better. Like stone fruit had a really strong start to the season. So despite the fact that they've started early, fruit's really good. And, um, yeah, people, if they can't get a mango or if, if they feel like a mango is too expensive, they're, they're getting some stone fruit. And they're not competing against each other, I suppose. I, I guess for people who might struggle to find a mango for their Christmas um, breakfast plate or whatever it may be, then maybe maybe it's stone fruit to go for this year. Yeah, um, you know, might be a nectarine or a peach. Um, and, you know, again, this year there's really, really nice fruit out there. They've had, they've had some good sunny weather. And as much as they've started early, it means that the middle varieties that are the really nice sweet ones, they'll be starting, they'll be around Christmas time um, for people to jump onto. Adrian Farsich, he is a market agent for Mercer Mooney, specialising in mangoes, stone fruit and citrus, and he was speaking to Michelle Stanley. Six minutes to one. Well, the new president of the WA branch of the Australian Veterinary Association wants the government to play a role in attracting more vets to regional areas. Dr Katie Kreutz is based in Esperance and has just been elected to the top job. She's on a mission to get more vets working and enjoying life in a regional town. The goal is to bring some excitement and just really show off what being a rural vet can be like to people to hopefully encourage more of them to come down, but also really to petition government to put some more um, funding uh, effort into supporting vets in rural practice. We're key for biosecurity, you know, exotic animal diseases were big talk um, earlier this year, and veterinarians really need to be at the heart of taking care of those issues. Is petitioning government the only way you can sort of go about some of that? It's going to be probably a complex grouping of, of different modalities to get more vets into regions. Obviously, um, help with funding like HEX debt relief for uh, vets, especially new grads that go rurally is going to be part of it. I think educating students and new graduates about the joys of going out into mixed practice. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's been probably a bit of a a loss of attention around how great it is to be away from emergency centers, be away from referral centers, have a crack, learn on your own, go out on a ledge a bit, um, because as the world is changing, expectations are higher. But 
it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be out here in the far corners offering services to those that really need them. So student education and new graduate education is a big part of it. And I think overall just highlighting the joys of of country life um, because being close to the city, big lights, lots of activities can be fun, but I would really love to show off and for any other veterinarians that live in the far corners of WA to show off how awesome country living really is. I mean, if you live in Esperance, you just know. Dr. Katie Kreutz, she's the president of the WA, well, the new president of the WA branch of the Australian Veterinary Association and uh, talking about what she'd like to achieve while she's in the job with Tara DeLangraft. Three minutes to one. Uh, News for you at one o'clock. First, it's off to the markets because 1,184 head of cattle uh, was sold at the Mouche sale yards this morning. So the number's up about 200 on last week. Tracy Kilner's been at the sale. Hello, Tracy. How did it go? We had an average quality yarding with the exception of um, an excellent lineup of heavy cows selling to 152 cents a kilo. A large run of British breed store cows were in demand from restockers, feeders and processors, selling to a top of 158 cents, only to be topped by a single young quite Jersey cow making a high of 210 cents a kilo. Vila steers under 280 kilos, eased 10 cents, selling to 248 cents. Heavier weight calves sold to 258 cents a kilo. The Wiener heifer values once again increased with weight, ranging from 124 to 246 cents a kilo. Yielding steers weighing under 330 kilos gained, selling to 254 cents, while the heavier prime steers sold to 294 cents a kilo. Yielding heifers weighing under 330 kilos sold to 152 cents, and the heavy weights gained, making 132 to 176 cents a kilo. Grown steers returned 140 to 196 cents, while the grown heifers sold from 130 to 178 cents a kilo. Store cows sold from 50 to 158 cents. Medium weight cows made 120 to 150 cents, and heavy weight cows reached 152 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls made 150 to 224 cents, while medium weight processing bulls sold from 160 to 166 cents and heavy weights from 100 to 174 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thanks for running through those details today at Mushe. We'll be back at Mushe this time tomorrow to go through the results of the sheep market. Uh, this text just in from James in Albany wanting to know what is the fire risk for an electric weed control system? Well, apparently, James, Deep Herd research scientist Miranda Slaven, who you heard from a few moments ago, she was telling our reporter Lucinda Jose that the weeds have to be green for the X-Power machine to kill them with an electric volt. So that apparently reduces the fire risk. Good to talk to you today. The One O'Clock News is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.